Vision Net Zero, a podcast created by Leading Change. We are excited to be back with another roundtable episode in which I'm joined by three youth leaders working in the sustainable finance space. Emile Laverne, climate strategist from Manifest Climate, Julie Siegel, senior manager of climate finance and environmental defense, and Kim Watsada, a fourth year chemical engineering student at the University of Toronto, and for the past year, an intern at CPP Investments across their investment management and sustainable investing teams. Our guests share insights into their work, some ideas on bringing more awareness to sustainable finance to the broader public, and some future solutions and possibilities that they are excited about in the sector. If you haven't heard our last roundtable episode, please feel free to go back and give that one a listen. I just want to quickly note to listeners that the room that I was recording in had quite a bit of echo, so I apologize in advance if my audio is unclear. Thankfully, as the host, you are mostly hearing from the guests anyway, so hopefully it won't be too bad for you. It was a great conversation, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it as well. Here's episode 8. We're going to start as we usually do um, with some introductions. So uh, we'll start with uh, Kim. Mohamed, just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, and what role that you currently uh, do as your as your job. Sure. Sounds good. Thanks, Bo. So I'm Kim, current intern at CPP Investments on their sustainable investing team. I'm wrapping up a year-long internship that I've been doing with them before I head to my final year of chemical engineering at the University of Toronto this September. I am often asked the question about how I made the pivot from engineering to finance and even more so, why did I do that? The long story short is that I feel that sustainable finance is a place where I can make impact at scale. So scale up those engineering technologies I've had firsthand experience with. And in my time at CPP Investments, I have seen the reach that the largest pension fund in Canada has had and the impact you can have in the sustainable finance place. So that's what got me stuck in this this space, basically. Awesome. Thank you, Kim. And Julie. Thanks, Bo. Um, I think my background is also a bit circuitous and open to some questions maybe for, for all three of us. So, hi, my name is Julie. Uh, I'm based in Dish With One Spoon territory, Toronto. Um, and I'm currently working at Environmental Defense Canada as Senior Manager of Climate Finance. My background is in sustainable finance, business, as well as climate and environmental advocacy. And I kind of bring those two things together in, in this role. Um, for five years before this, I was managing a portfolio of impact investments. So really looking for positive social and environmental outcomes as well as as well as financial return. Um, and I saw sustainable finance growing in, in scale and in numbers and dollars. Um, but a lot of that didn't necessarily have the integrity that, you know, I was seeing in an impact investing portfolio or that we really need to confront the, the climate and social challenges that we're facing. Um, so I saw policy change in terms of financial policy as a really critical and untapped lever, which is how I pivoted into this role that I'm, I'm working in now, um, where I'm researching and advocating for climate-related financial policy change in Canada. Awesome. Thank you, Julie. And I'm sure we'll have some opportunity to dig into that a little bit more. And Emil. Yeah, thanks for uh, inviting me on. I'm also based in Dish with One Spoon territory in Toronto. 
Uh, I am currently a climate strategist at Manifest Climate, which is a SaaS-based startup that also provides uh, professional services um, related to the sustainable finance space. Um, we do kind of very niche support, so happy to go more into details uh, around that. Um, before that, I was a sustainability consultant at the Delphi Group, where I uh, supported primarily private sector clients on developing and analyzing uh, corporate strategy with respect to uh, climate considerations. So what that means is uh, helping clients develop climate-related strategies, analyzing them with climate-related scenario analysis, and uh, disclosing uh, relevant climate-related financial uh, information in disclosures, uh, public-facing disclosures. Uh, and before that, I was uh, at TD Bank, um, but I also come to the space uh, from uh, perhaps an unexpected background. I, I studied economics and development studies in undergrad and global affairs in, in grad school. So uh, similar to Julian Kim, kind of a circuitous route to get here. Uh, happy to be here and, and kind of echoing both of what they have uh, either said or, or kind of implied that there's it's a huge space. We need uh, all hands on deck. Um, it is cr quite interesting to be working in this space at this moment. So happy to be here and look forward to the conversation. Fantastic. Okay, so now that we've got sort of a, an overview of the spaces that you work in, um, you know, let's talk a little bit more about the work itself. So when you're looking at maybe an average uh, work day or an average work week, sometimes it's easier to kind of come at it from from a week perspective rather than a, rather than an individual day. What does some of that work look like? Uh, the, the day to day for you. Um, let's start with Kevin. Sure. So to classify what sustainable investing looks like at CPP, first of all, I, I would say our, our job is to incorporate ESG and climate change considerations into the investment life cycle. So we're working with deal teams in the firm, other internal and external partners to do this from due diligence to asset management. We, we do cover the entire life cycle. For me specifically, the project I'm working on right now is developing an in-house net zero scenario for the fund. So it's exciting. There's a lot of different projections out there in how can the world get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. As you can imagine, there's a lot of assumptions that feed into that. So we're working on making our own differentiated approach to build out this net zero model. And currently, I'm creating a dashboard that compares all of our assumptions and model outputs against the models currently existing in the marketplace. So we can be really intentional about how our model differs, basically. So it's nice, that's a very quant side of my role, lots of coding involved, but also I am helping them write their current annual sustainable investing report. So that's pretty different, there's a lot of writing there. So I would say my day-to-day -day is split between, on one side, doing a lot of independent analytical work, the other half, meetings, project management, and there's always time at the end of the day for a coffee, so it's a great mix. Awesome. Yeah, I, I do love uh, answer, asking this question because uh, I think the most interesting part of it is is where people start. And, and a lot of people have really a difficult time describing what, quote unquote, the average sort of day or week looks like. So it, uh, it usually uh, lends itself to some, some interesting sort of directions that we take the conversation. Uh, let's keep going around. Uh, Julie, go ahead. How about you? I think I'm going to be one of those who fall into the category of having a harder time describing this. 
And I'm so glad Kim went first because when I was working in investments, I found that a, a, a easy question to answer. You know, my quarter kind of looked the same. I could tell you exactly what I was going to be doing based on where we were in the quarter cycle. Um, you know, the, the financial quarter, of course. Working in a nonprofit for environmental and, and policy advocacy is incredibly variable, incredibly er erratic, I might say, um, which is certainly part of the fun of it. Um, but again, my role is to, is to research and advocate for climate-related financial policy change. So that means I spend part of my time thinking about what needs to happen, what's the policy change that will get us to a uh, financial system that aligns, that keeps global warming below 1.5 degrees, um, and then the rest of my time trying to advance and mobilize those recommendations and ideas and policy changes. Um, so again, there's, there's the first part where it's researching best practices in other jurisdictions, trying to think about the gaps and challenges in our financial system as it works right now, um, staying on top of the issue of climate finance, kind of every news piece that happens, I, it, it's good if I read it. Um, and then the mobilizing side where it's government relations trying to uh, build literacy on the issue of climate finance in government and in public, building coalitions with other organizations or individuals who are advocating for, who, who believe in the same outcomes and who want to advance the same things. Um, so it, it's a lot of different pieces and I can group it into those two buckets. Uh, in general, though, it's important in this work to be responsive, to see what the opportunities are, to see how the landscape and conversation is changing, and then revise your plans quite flexibly around that. Um, one great piece about this work in, in kind of the day-to-day -day of it is that you're not only working with your paid colleagues under the same organization name, but you just find other people who are motivated for the same goal, you know, helping the financial system keep one global warming below 1.5 degrees. And, you know, the organization doesn't matter. You just find people and, and work together in a very cooperative way. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Namil, we'll come to you in a minute, but I just want to follow up really quickly. You kind of described two buckets um, that some of your work is, is involved in, right? Like there's the research sort of side, and then there's also the the outreach kind of side of it. So, um, you know, how... How evenly would you say those two aspects of your work are split? That's a great question. Um, I would have thought it would be quite 50-50, but I'm finding it takes more work to mobilize an idea than it takes to come up with it. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Certainly uh, tracks with some of my experience as well. So, uh, Emil, how about you? Yeah. Um, just before I dive in, uh, you know, coming from a consulting background, absolutely, uh, you know, the consulting words for it are like maybe ideation or, or strategizing versus implementation. Like the, the implementation piece is always the hard part or the mobilization element. Um, I, in my role, so Manifest Climate, it's in the name. We focus exclusively on climate. So, you know, the sustainable finance conversation is often uh, broader than simply focusing on climate, but uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which being the the uh, urgency of action on climate change, as well as the fairly developed or developing uh, norm and regulatory environment as it relates to climate disclosures, uh, policies in, in different jurisdictions targeting net zero, et cetera. 
uh, we, we focus on, on climate change. So I, I work with quite a few different types of folks. Um, we are a startup. We used to be a professional services company. In other words, we used to be kind of a consulting company. Uh, we, in my role, I work with financial institutions. So, uh, asset managers, kind of like what Kim described, you know, trying to figure out how to develop strategies, what, um, the most in line with best practice and potentially emerging regulation or policy aligned, uh, developments for net zero on the strategic front for them, maybe. So, uh, we support clients in setting net zero strategies. That's more on the kind of that vestigial professional services support to clients. Um, but a majority of our focus, because we are a startup, is on our SaaS solution. So SaaS is that, you know, if you can visualize that abbreviation, S-A-A-S, so service as a service. Uh, our customers are primarily businesses, and we really want to help them understand and have access to climate-related information so that they can understand, assess, and act on improving their climate-related maturity. So that can mean a whole host of different things. We really focus on governance. So we provide a uh, climate maturity assessments to our clients, uh, which helps them identify the low-hanging fruit both for disclosure. So many firms will find that they are doing more internally as it relates to climate than they may be disclosing. Uh, and when I talk about disclosures, I'm talking about in the sustainability report. Of course, as an industry, we'd like to move towards integration of those disclosures within financial uh, AKA regulated, uh, financial filings. Um, but yeah, so there's that disclosure element, but there's also that action element. So we also kind of lay out a map of here's how you can improve, uh, your governance, your risk management, your strategy, et cetera, uh, not to get too jargony, but the task force, uh, for climate related financial disclosures set out 11 recommendations, which uh, many emerging regulations align to. And those 11 recommendations are very useful for organizations that are thinking about how to get started or how to improve uh, the way in which they think about climate. And so we really rely on that framework um, and we help kind of demystify and make actionable disinformation uh, related to regulation. So kind of what Julie was talking about around motivating and, and making accessible what the uh, what kind of like the advocates in the space are calling for, uh, what firms are being criticized on, what uh, politicians and regulators are thinking about on the climate policy front, and what the movements in the market are in the climate finance space, et cetera, so that our clients have a holistic understanding both of what is happening within their organization, how they can improve it, what's happening outside of their organization, so what's happening in the news? What are the trends that they should be aware of? And then finally, we have a kind of an educational component, which helps them uh, engage with their colleagues and then get everyone up to speed so they're all speaking the same language. So, you know, let's say you want to talk to someone over in risk, but they don't know what you mean by net zero. You don't, they don't know what you mean by climate governance. We offer kind of that feature. So for me, what that means is there's client delivery. There's engaging with clients, helping them understand and, and access our platform, make the most uh, use of it. Uh, understanding them and their needs, doing that ad hoc additional consulting work around developing net zero strategies, as well as through those engagements, helping to develop and, and productize certain services. Because, and um, I'll wrap it up shortly, a lot of the consulting that financial institutions and other organizations that are impacted by the TCFD, so that framework that I mentioned, 
um, can be to a certain extent repeatable because that framework is unlikely to evolve. So because it's based on a set framework, you can productize kind of what's the 101 of the TCFD, what's the 101 of uh, effective climate governance, et cetera. Of course, these things will evolve over time, but we know that certain consultants charge quite a lot of money and take a lot of time to develop these materials and these products for clients. We want to help kind of leapfrog that so that that consulting budget that these firms have can be better used to actually act, right? So we're giving them the map and we're saying, go, you know, we can support you along that way, but also you can internalize that and actually perhaps accelerate because time is of the essence. So, um, you know, not to boast or be too uh, bought into the Kool-Aid, but that's kind of uh, our intention with our platform. So it's kind of a mix of everything. Uh, it's a blend of many different things. Do you, um, I don't ask this question, uh, when you're, when you're engaging with, uh, with clients like this, do you find that a lot of these clients are coming into it with certain expectations or, uh, certain emphasis on, on aspects of, uh, whether it's the ASG more broadly or specifically like the TCFD framework, um, that you have to sort of convince them that actually the bigger picture is more important and this is kind of the way to look at it. Um, you know, or are they kind of coming to you because they're already on board and they just need help, uh, in realizing, you know, um, some of these, uh, issues or challenges that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. I'd be curious to hear about uh, Julie and, and Kim, your interactions in the space as well, but it varies. So we have a growth team that reaches out to people. So there's an element of cold calling. So so to your point around kind of people that are newer in the space, not necessarily read up on this, I would say quite a few of our clients are educated enough to single out climate as an action item worthy of emphasis outside of just broad ESG emphasis. Not saying that there's there's uh, one is better than the other, but oftentimes in conversations, um, ESG can get kind of confusing because there's so many different issues that fall under that broad uh, umbrella. Um, so yeah, it, it varies. The people that find the benefit and the value in manifest climate are focused on climate and pay for it. So yeah, but, and that's that's great. I appreciate uh, the insight there, uh, Kim. From your perspective, as somebody who has um, you know, is a, a background that is not traditional, uh, I would say, in, in, in this space. Um, have, have there been specific challenges that you have faced uh, sort of entering into this space uh, from your background? And following up with that, maybe there's some opportunities as well that having an alternative background can give you coming into the space. So maybe there's some of those that you've noticed uh, as well. Definitely. So I can speak to the student perspective of the challenges and opportunities in this space. Over the four years of my schooling, I think I've had around six internships so far in areas related to sustainable finance. And I've basically seen each time that there is a steep learning curve and there are barriers to finding those internship entry-level positions for youth interested. So on the learning curve side, I, I would break down my experience into three stages when you enter a sustainability-related role. First, there's the reading stage. Then there's the understanding stage. And then there's the point where you're educated enough to start actually forming your own opinions. So like starting with the reading stage, it can be really overwhelming when you first enter. Do you start reading about politics? Do you start reading about one of the many startups, innovations, opportunities that are out in there? So many news sources, it can be overwhelming. 
And if you don't have mentorship or guidance, it, it can be hard to know where to start. I've heard the phrase drinking from a fire hose quite a few times here. So at the start, you just have to put your head down and start reading. And that was the first difficult stage for me. And then the second one after that is when you start understanding. So you start knowing who the key decision makers are in the space. You start knowing which technologies you want to track and have your bets on. And then that leads you to the final stage of actually understanding and then making your own opinions. So it's an iterative cycle. It can be a long one. It took me about a year to be comfortable even expressing my opinions in the area. And I've been fortunate to have jobs alongside forefront experts in this space to guide my way through this cycle. I know a lot of other students, they don't have that because when you look for an internship in this space, you're competing against hundreds and sometimes thousands of other interested students. And they're all driven by social impact. I think that's definitely an increasing trend among people hunting for roles here. So yeah, that is to say it's it's a steep learning curve and it's hard for everybody to get that mentorship that they need to navigate it. So that would be a big challenge that I would highlight. But in terms of opportunities, I, I have hope that the space is going to open up as companies incorporate more sustainability practices into their operations, more internships and entry-level roles, I hope, will be available, giving more of us an opportunity to explore the area. Yeah, thank you for that question. And you, you, you spoke to the competition that exists, um, which, of course, I think a, a lot of uh, sectors related to sustainability are having increased competition, as you mentioned, the sort of purpose-driven aspect of it, which is so core to our, our, our generations, is creating a lot of competition. Um, but I'm curious, uh, and Julie, I'll pass this to you, uh, do you still feel like there's a lot of misconceptions around, around the role that finance can play um, when it comes to the broader question about sustainability, especially uh, from the point of view of young people, uh, many of of whom have a sort of skeptical or, or you know, sort of view of, of the role of finance uh, in the economy. There's certainly a challenge when finance is used as an end to itself rather than a means to an end. So finance is one of the many tools that we can use and need to use to address the climate crisis, to address other systemic challenges. If finance isn't helping the transition to 1.5 degrees, it's, it's a hindrance. Um, so it's a really important sector to help shift in the right direction. That being said, there are tons of misconceptions, and this can actually be an opportunity for young people, but I'll get to that in a moment. There's, I would say, two narratives in transforming finance for sustainable finance. One which focuses on just getting the right information in place, what's frequently called you know, disclosure, um, and then a second one which focuses on mobilizing that information and disclosure. And that one's a bit more transformative. So that's probably where most of the misconceptions lie, um, where there's a lot of effort put into getting the right information in place, which is important, to make informed decisions, absolutely. But what we really need to focus on is the impacts that different investments and that the financial sector is having. If finance is going to be a tool to help mitigate the climate crisis um, and everything adjacent to that, 
it has to focus on what impact is this investment, is this portfolio, is the financial sector having? You know, is it cutting down carbon emissions? Is it cutting off some some fraction of a degree of warming or is it moving in the opposite direction? So I think that's a, a fundamental challenge and misconception that remains. And we have to shift from thinking about, you know, just what are the risks to an investor related to climate change, which is, you know, somewhat where some of the status quo is stuck. And instead moving to think about what are the implications that these investments are having on society, people, and planet. Um, and that's where there's an opportunity for young people in sustainable finance space. There's a real opportunity to make a mark because sustainability and education and business education is certainly newer. An understanding of climate science and a proper understanding of the urgency is newer. So young people are often coming into the workplace in junior positions, but with huge uh, strength in terms of climate literacy understanding, a really amazing understanding of the different systemic levers that interact between climate change, global warming, and all of the other, the other factors in society and our economy. So the senior leaders in terms of an organizational hierarchy are often looking to young people to help supply information and intel for some of the decisions that those senior leaders will be making, which is a really excellent opportunity for uh, the many passionate but intelligent and informed young people coming into the space. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I think uh, a lot of young, young people can feel empowered by that, uh, you know, sense that the context that they are coming up with, the context that they're being educated in is different. From um, you know the, the the situation in society was you know a decade ago or a couple of decades ago too. So their perspective is is very valuable and should be considered very valuable. And, uh, Mil, uh, I'm curious about sort of how we connect that understanding to um, you know the broader society at whole. Uh, how do we uh, sort of encourage this conversation? Um, so that when people are looking at the role of finance, it's not that it, it's an assumption that society makes or that our individual makes that the impacts uh, that any sort of piece of investment has on climate is an inherent part of what you're looking at. Um, do you have thoughts about that? Absolutely. Um, I, I, before I, I answer that, though, I want to note kind of my. Uh, intrigue in Kim's note around kind of the competition in, in these roles. It, it makes sense. I just, it just hasn't occurred to me. The space has moved so quickly. Like, a, as I mentioned, I graduated in 2017. So that was five years ago. I'm dating myself. But, uh, and in that space of time, per Kim's comment, like things have changed so drastically because I remember being in grad school and trying to talk about climate with my peers and there were one or two people or, you know, it was kind of always a kind of the side of the desk and, um, yeah, anyways, it, it is more competitive, but fear not, there are many opportunities out there. And, and I really want to, um, like second what Julie mentioned around, you know, disclosure is not, and I don't mean to poorly paraphrase you, but, but not an end in of itself. Uh, and you need to think about that climate impact and to, to get to your question about the, uh, how do we bring this into kind of a broader conversation outside of uh the the niche spaces where it's occurring i think it's a great conversation 
in a corporate sense, I think, and this kind of ties back to disclosure and process and all that, um, here at Manifest Climate, um, kind of drank the Kool-Aid in this front, the, I have really learned the value of governance, so effective governance within an organization around you as the head of whatever business line have as part of your mandate to consider climate-related risks and opportunities. Uh, so that's kind of a risk analysis. How are you being impacted by the climate? And then pushing that a little bit for, further and trying to align whatever you are responsible for to align with a desired tra transition tra trajectory, which in this case would be net zero by 2050. So that looks different across many different industries. Some of them are easier to abate, others less so. I would say folks in the finance space are really heavily relying on uh, individuals like Kim and, and others to think about this. You know, that's what the modeling that I think Kim was referring to, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, kind of touches on, right? Um, but even beyond that, the, the conversations around climate finance and what does sustainable finance mean um, are getting increasingly sophisticated. Beyond what is the impact on the climate, I think now you're introducing a time element. By when should we have met X threshold, right? Be it decommissioning uh, coal-fired power plants, you know, I'm kind of making this up as a, an example, but um, the conversations are getting more real because we are seeing a slow but sure uh, move towards policy, right? The, the signing, I think, today, the day of our recording, uh, in the States, they'll be signing in climate legislation um, that has an impact on subsidies across the board, right? Um, the same is happening in the disclosure space for sustainable finance. Um, there are normative developments uh, led by industry groups, uh, you know, affiliated with the UN that try to define what net zero looks like. These are getting very complicated and very sophisticated. And the norms that are being developed can then have regulatory impacts. And I think the best way forward for us as a society is as we define these terms that will define how uh, they are used in the next I don't know, two, three decades in, in the financial space at the national level, all parts of society uh, that are knowledgeable and have a stake in. The, the transition should be at the table. So for example, you know, there was this push in Canada to define what transition finance meant. I don't think, and it happened behind closed doors, I don't think that there wasn't enough, and this is a personal opinion, not one of my uh, employer, right? But it happened behind closed doors and it could have been perhaps a bit more collaborative, right? That's not to say that the people around the table weren't giving it their best, but as these conversations become more sophisticated, and because they impact everyone by virtue of their impact on the climate and what gets financed, what doesn't, to Julie's point around, like, are you supporting the transition? Because if you're not, then perhaps you might be standing in its way. Um, there's also this, this uh, lens of how quickly are you accelerating this transition? Um, how are you thinking about adjusting your risks, et cetera? There's quite a, what I've found in the sustainable finance space is that there's a whole host of vocabulary words that people uh, may or may not agree on their definition. And we need to be on the same page to act in one way or another or to push for tweaks, be it through activism or through voting, et cetera. Um, but when the, those definitions are being set, the more collaborative we can be, the better because the more views at the table 
the more likely it is to take into consideration many different stakeholders. That being said, calling for that is not a call for inaction or for kind of uh, paralysis by analysis, right? I don't want there to be, on the other hand, too many people around the table that kind of disagree and the, the process blows up. Um, I'm really curious to hear both what Julian and Kim think about this. But, you know, when I look to Europe, they have a definition for what they uh, define as sustainable. It's not perfect. It includes natural gas, right? But for a whole host of other elements, it is quite good. And it is kind of path-breaking. So, um, yeah, I, I don't mean to pass on the EU thing. That's a very different conversation. But that's an example of terms being defined and that impact being seen kind of almost overnight. So, um, yeah, I, I would say to answer your question, Bo, we need to be having these conversations out in the open because they impact all of us. Well, throwing it out there to, uh, well, let's go with Kim first. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Definitely the language being used around sustainable finance and how you discuss it and where is a huge factor. I think it's really interesting at CPP Investments because we have this huge social purpose of investing, getting returns on behalf of the 21 million Canadians who are beneficiaries of the plan. So on one hand, you know, we, we have to get those financial returns. But on the other hand, one would argue that it's also our job to make sure that we account for those ESG-related risks and opportunities. And I, I think it's just very important with the language of explaining our intention with sustainable investing here. I hear the phrase climate risk is business risk a lot. The flip side is also true. Climate opportunity is business opportunity like our sustainable investing team, like we have the overall goal of having risk adjusted returns. So when we work with in like deal teams to incorporate these ESG considerations into the investment life cycle, we are looking for ways that we can improve the underlying value of our asset. And it just turns out that if you account for ESG and climate risk, you can do that. So I, I think by being very clear about the purpose of our sustainable investing mandate is something that's really useful in convincing the layperson that the sustainable investing, sustainable finance mandate is something that's very relevant and necessary. And, you know, that kind of ties into the whole taxonomy of what a green asset is and what sustainable finance really is. Yeah, thank you. And, and Julie, how about you? So how do we broaden the conversation on sustainable finance and think about, you know, how that works for, for public interest. I think a bit contradictorily, I think we actually need to understand some of the challenges and trade-offs that are going to be complicated and difficult here. I mean, I, I'm so, uh, I think there's so much opportunity in Canada with our public pension system, you know, who, which has that mandate to support, um, support, you know, the retirees and, and workers of Canada. And there's so many places where we can find mutual um, mutual opportunity for climate mitigation, adaptation, resilience, as well as business, uh, business opportunity. But there's also some trade-offs where, for example, air conditioning is going to be a huge business opportunity under a warming world, but that's not a positive climate outcome that, you know, exudes really toxic toxic chemicals into the air, which, which are warming agents. So there are some challenging things which we're going to have to prioritize as a society. And that trickles down into policy, that trickles down into sustainable finance. Um, so the way I like to think about it, you know, how do we broaden the conversation? I think we need to 
take off our blinders a little bit, broaden our imaginations for what is possible based on what we want to be possible in the type of society we want to live in, the type of planet that is ideally livable. Um, so one concept that I'll introduce that it's essential for, I think, every climate-minded individual to understand is the Holocene. That's the current epoch that we're living in. It's been going on for about 12,000 years. It's perfectly suited for human civilization, for the type of agriculture that we've developed. It's enabled humans to, to really thrive in the way that our society does. That's been going on for about 12,000 years, the Holocene. It is our perfect little planetary bubble that lets us live so well. Our economy has been going on in different ways for, for thousands and thousands of years for as long as, as humans have existed. But our current model is, let's say, 300, 500 years old versus, and that's that's a human creation, our economy. It, it works well for a lot of things, works badly for a lot of things, uh, but, but we design that. Whereas the Holocene has been going on for, for thousands of years, incredible physics interactions that we can't control or replicate, uh, but just has happened in this wonderful way and, and we're messing it up. So if we want to broaden the conversation on, on climate and sustainable finance in general, I think we need to really broaden our imagination for what we want to prioritize and how we're going to do that. Yeah. Can I just jump in very quickly? A hundred percent. That framing has really helped me in my career. Um, I read this book, The Ends of the World by Peter Brannon which I highly recommend to everyone that is very well written. It's kind of like a narrative fiction and it uh, does a great job of contextualizing geochemical cycles, just like uh, Julie brought up. Um, it, so that's, that's one piece. And then to go back to Kim's earlier point around the education and being more on it, being a younger individual in the space. Um, that is true. I think the value add is perhaps access to, sustainable finance or, or business courses. Uh, if you're a business student or if you're a geography student, you know, there's definitely uh, a climate lens to certain courses, et cetera. It's also our ability to consume, um, you know, you may learn in university or just in your early stages of your career to consume quite a lot of information and synthesize it very efficiently. Every like six months to a year, a huge report comes out related to sustainable finance that is a soup of abbreviations, uh, you know, new terms, et cetera. And you really need to be able to uh, succinctly ex in an accessible way and ideally in an engaging way, speak to what Julie's talking about around kind of this delicate balance that in which we find ourselves, the way our economy is impacted and uh, uh, impacting the, the ways uh, this works, as well as our contribution to said economy via both the political and the uh, industrial systems that we've created and how that actually trickles down into an actionable decision item for someone that is, you know, to use kind of a risk manager at an asset manager. Uh, what does that person's decision and mandate and uh, role, how could it be best aligned to avoiding or limiting warming to the, you know, 1.5 global target right now. And it's, and I like to think that young people are very well suited for that because we have grown up in a space and, you know, maybe this is anecdotal, but like, what are music genres anymore? Our movie genre is even still super defined. Like, you know, I'm, I'm really into rap, but like there's rap pop and country rap. Now there's all these different kind of things. And we're used to this uncertainty and this blend. And I think 
climate necessitates this understanding of uh, nuance and and our ability to be clear and and uh, explain things well. So, uh, yeah, kind of a tangent, but but fully kind of bringing those two uh, perspectives together. Young people, I like to think, uh, are super well suited for that. Um, and that does require kind of remaining engaged uh, about what the latest reports are and um, not just in the finance space and in the risk space, but kind of dabbling across sectors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I mean, I think uh, sort of the the downsides of having sort of so many competing interests and so much information uh, available at our fingertips at all times has also produced, like you mentioned, this sort of capacity to be able to walk and move in different spaces and, and see the threads between them uh, because we've sort of had to do that uh, as young people just in general. Anyway, um, I think I, I've heard uh, I've heard it called the iPod generation for that same reason, right? That, like you mentioned, what is a genre? If you have an iPod in your whole life, that's on shuffle and <laughs> you're getting rap next to country, next to, you know, whatever classical um, or jazz like myself. Um, one of the things that Julie mentioned uh, was, was imagination. And um, I, I'd like to think that part of our, our, our upside or part of what we can bring as young people is, is having a, a sort of bigger view or picture about what's possible. So when we sort of look to the future uh, in Canada, um, from your experience working in this sector, what are some things uh, that really excite you? And let's start with Kim. Something that excites me. Well, maybe this is just me talking from the engineering perspective and my love for all things technology, but I am very excited to see the implementation of a lot of these technologies that we've been saying have been emerging, but are now becoming to be more and more economically viable. I mean, you you look at the Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed. So now hydrogen, green hydrogen is cost competitive with other types of hydrogen and other more polluting sources of energy. I'm really excited to see it finally being implemented, hopefully at scale, hopefully in the near term, and finally, you know, seeing the shift from what has been a time of a lot of data collection and disclosure. And, you know, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done on that end, but I'm excited to finally see that move now towards decarbonization strategy and mm -hmm. actually implementing it. So in Canada, we have our own high emitting sectors. I'm very excited to keep an eye on Alberta and see the energy transition over there with how they progress with respect to, you know, is hydrogen the answer? Is CCS the answer? How are they going to move forward here? That's something that I definitely want to keep my eye on. So thank you, Kim. And uh, Julie, how about you? There are some really interesting possibilities in Canada. We are lucky to have a pretty cool social security system where there's pretty high pension rates. Um, with which all have huge pools of capital. Um, really glad Kim was here to speak to some of what's happening, some of the work that's happening there. I would look to Quebec, actually, as a really interesting model for how finance can work as a tool for uh, positive development. There's what's called a, a solidarity or social economy model in Quebec. I just moved from Toronto after about a decade living in Montreal, Quebec. 
So maybe I have some rose tinted glosses. I will admit that I do for other things in the, in the city and province, but um, the solidarity economy model is a mindset approach policy where a lot of the credit unions and pension funds will reinvest in community development. We've seen the, the pension fund of Quebec, the CPP equivalent, which is called CDPQ, um, is one of the leaders in terms of climate commitments and implementation for climate-aligned finance in their, in their portfolio. Um, so looking at some of the actions there are inspiring, but also the framework of recognizing finance as a tool that interacts with society uh, has democratic means through a lot of, you know, or relatively democratic means through a lot of credit unions and thinking about that type of model and letting that seep into the amazing pension system and other, you know, relatively stable financial system that we have in Canada. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I, I would say that you're definitely not the only person who uh, has quote unquote rose tinted glasses after moving to Montreal. I hear a lot of very good things from people who moved there. So, um, Emil, how about you? Well, I mean, as I lived in Montreal for three years. Shout out Montreal. Also, shout out Toronto. It takes a little bit to transition, but uh, it's got many great, wonderful neighborhoods. But um, yeah, no, looking ahead, I, I would kind of break it up into a couple different pieces, right? Uh, yeah, I'm based in Toronto. The thing that I'm excited about uh, for the young people entering the sustainable finance space right now is the Canadian leadership, both at the heart of these pension funds um, and in the headquartering of one of the International Sustainability Standards Board's offices in Montreal. Um, so that is on the disclosure piece to Julia's earlier point. Um, disclosure is not action, but it is uh, one step into kind of broadening that conversation and, and getting a lot more organizations on board, especially in the private sector. And then secondly, it's kind of to, to Kim, to kind of build off of Kim's point around the technology, like who's going to have the courage to, to really start transforming society. And I hope that those folks use kind of a climate justice lens, right? I think oftentimes when we think of the commodities of the future, it's copper, it's lithium, et cetera. Um, you know, not to get too into international uh, Chile's uh, new government is taking a different approach to common commodity extraction, right? And so it'll be really interesting to see uh, the ways in which climate justice is integrated into um, the the types of technologies that emerge and the commodities that that are needed to build this world of the future. And I know that the Canadian financial system often gets credit for being uh, risk averse and, you know, having weathered some of the worst elements of the 08, 09 financial crisis. And that is a positive, right? But it's also kind of not true when you think of all of the mining companies that we have that operate abroad in highly geopolitically risky environments and um, often with, you know, negative impacts on, on local communities abroad, et cetera. The people that finance those mines and, and kind of reap the benefits that are headquartered in Toronto and the lawyers that work for them, the accounts that work for them, et cetera, they're all kind of like betting their hats on, on a risky business model, um, it, which is fascinating to me because, you know, on the one hand, we do need commodities and, and I hope that they are uh, extracted and, and recycled in a way that has uh, climate justice at its heart. But on the other hand, we know that there are industries that will grow that may seem risky now just because of a perception that we have, but 
solar, wind, batteries, kind of electrification, building charging stations, et cetera, are not as risky as some of the industries on which Canada has built its wealth. And so it'll be interesting to me to see how courageous or, or who will go forward and, and really help build the, the society of the future, right? Like, what is the company that will help uh, municipalities plan their downtowns to be more active, uh, more focused on active transportation, for example, right? Like, we have the knowledge uh, here. We have a great amount of talent within Canada. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. And then the third element that I'm excited for is really for Canada to step outside itself. So I'm not Canadian. I'm very happy to, to work and, and live here. And I've been here for almost a decade. Um, Canada is one of almost 200 countries and we all need to work together. And we need to think outside of just ourselves, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, et cetera. There are so many other places from which we can draw inspiration and talent and collaborate with to go forward, right? You know, there's always that trope of like, uh, the North American goes to Europe and comes back and is so happy. And it's like, well, why are you so happy? It's because, well, their cities are walkable and, you know, they prioritize bike lanes, et cetera. We can do that here. We're just choosing not to, right? And it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, that that's a bit outside of the finance space, but you need money to rebuild infrastructure, right? And and all of these risk assessments and 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 visualizations of the future are inherently tied to the way in which we spend money today. So it'll be really interesting for me to see um, how we implement to, to Julia's point, to Julie's earlier point around kind of the doing, we might have the ideas or we might be coming up with the ideas right now. Who's going to put them in place? And and hopefully it's a lot of the folks listening to this. Uh, and yeah, I'm feeling hopeful this week because of the IRA passing. So we'll see uh, if that hope uh, stays. Awesome. Here, here. Somebody who wishes that he could bike to the grocery store on a regular basis. Uh, I'm very much here for that. Um, coming to the end of the conversation, this is flown by. Um, so last question here is about advice. So we've got a lot of young people who are uh, listening to the podcast and looking to be able to learn from some of the guests that we have. So for a young person who's, you know, maybe interested in learning a little bit more about sustainable finance or um, maybe it's just starting their career and, and looking to to get involved. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would uh, give to a young person? And let's start with Kim. Advice I would give. I, I think the three of us here have a good testament to how multidisciplinary this space is. Everyone has had their own career path to get to where they are today. They all have their own views and opinions on the different facets of climate change. So I, my my biggest advice would really just be find a mentor, find your coworkers and ask lots of questions. Don't be afraid to do that. I've bombarded my coworkers with so many questions over the past couple of years. I've worked alongside lawyers, people with political science backgrounds. Someone had a zoology background at one point. They all have such interesting dimensions and perspectives to share in the space. I truly think there's no better way to learn than by talking with all the people here, because that's how you refine your own understanding and pick out what you truly believe in. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, Julie? For my advice, I'm going to steal from Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations. Um, there's so many different ways that you can you can work in climate 100%, but as Antonio Guterres said, don't work for climate wreckers. Um, in sustainable finance, there is such a big wave here. In climate in general, there's such a big wave, and there's a lot of groups who 
maybe deliberately, maybe not deliberately, are doing are doing lip service to climate work, but not really delivering positive outcomes for people, planet, not delivering environmental justice in the way that they're considering climate. So as a young person, you have so many opportunities. There are so many wonderful opportunities to deliver really positive change and don't work for climate records. Don't let yourself be greenwashed. Hold firm on the science. Hold firm to what you know needs to happen to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. And you and every young person around you can do really amazing things to make the world a little bit more livable. Thank you, Julie. That's great. Uh, Emil, last word. 100% what Julie just said. Uh, you know, sometimes I hear, well, someone's got to do it. The counter question is, do you have to be that person? And do does someone really have to do that, right? Um, but more targeted to our conversation, the advice that I would give is uh, be ready to be lucky. So there will be lucky breaks in your career where you'll bump into someone or you'll be, you know, uh, on a webinar or whatever and, and kind of connect with someone. Be ready when that moment arises to be uh, kind of shine and that one of the ways to be ready is to be educated. Uh, and one of the ways to be educated is kind of following on Kim's point, engage with people, et cetera. I would encourage everyone listening that is interested in the sustainable finance space to learn three things. One is the different types of financiers. So all the way from a venture capitalist to an asset manager with a longer time horizon, what do they finance? How do they think about financing these things? A lot of this is available online. The second thing I would encourage you to learn is the abbreviations, honestly. GFANS, TCFD, uh, Net Zero, SBTI. If you can kind of define all those four and many more, you'll be uh, either in line or ahead of some of uh, your peers in the space. And then finally, understand the ways in which knowledge is created or uh, laundered into kind of a, a Western accepted system. Uh, be created by uh, academics or, or in, uh, from engagements with indigenous groups. And going from kind of the science, either the physicists coming up with the, the modeling and, and, you know, creating new, new knowledge, all the way into what I described earlier as that action item, right? So you need people all along the way, and they need to be collaborating and integrating uh, a knowledge transfer pathway, if you will, from, you know, kind of obtaining that knowledge to organizing around it in an activist sense, to advocating specific changes within sectors to then kind of either the professional services or the policy folks taking it in and saying, okay, what does this actually mean for an action item or for a policy or a regulation? And you need people within these organizations to take that into consideration and uh, translate it for their organization because every organization is different, even within different sectors. And they really need to be able to understand how to integrate this into your climate governance, how to actually act on it. And when you find yourself in that role, that's kind of what um, I think Julie was referring to. Don't work for climate records. If you find yourself kind of translating that knowledge and translating it to an action item and you see it's being watered down or uh, whatever, do what LeBron did, take your talents to South Beach, leave, go play somewhere else. There are many opportunities in the space and you don't need to be feeling guilty after work. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, all three of you. Uh, just really quickly, uh, it would be great if I could actually include in the show notes maybe some links or some resources for reading materials um, for our audience. So uh, that would be great if, uh, if we could follow up with some, some of that uh, to include in the notes. Um, this, was a, this was a great conversation. I get the sense we just kind of 
just touched or scratched the surface. Um, so I think uh, we'll definitely be looking to have a follow-up conversation at some point, because uh, I'm sure there's a lot of appetite for, for this subject. Uh, so thank you all three uh, for joining uh, this uh, episode today. And um, yeah, it's been a, a lot of fun. And thank you listeners once again for joining us. Um, for those of you that sustainable finance was a new concept, uh, we hope that this was a great introduction. And if you're looking to enter a career related to sustainable finance, we hope that this episode was helpful. Please feel free to reach out to us through Instagram or Twitter at LeadingChangeCA if you've got feedback, and let us know if you'd be interested in joining us for a conversation. We're always looking to share those stories of young sustainability leaders across the country. We've got more great episodes coming out soon, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button on whatever podcatcher you use if you haven't already done so. And until next time.